Hello, and welcome back to the Dictator's Podcast. I left off last week with Salvador Allende being elected the President of Chile. Today, we'll be covering the three years of the Allende Presidency, and we'll end with the coup d'etat that brings Augusto Pinochet into power. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of Chile under Allende, I wanted to talk a bit about the army and introduce Pinochet into the story for the first time. Now, I want to give an overview about life in the military, and that means I'm going to make some pretty broad generalizations. Most of what I'm saying here comes either from Pinochet's El Día Decisivo, or from interviews conducted in a nation of enemies, but it's worth remembering that none of this was absolute. People in the military were individuals with their own motivations, beliefs, and worldviews. That being said, you may remember that last week I briefly mentioned a 1931 military coup, that brought about the very short-lived Socialist Republic of Chile. Now, that coup didn't have too much of an impact on the actual government of Chile, since in less than a year it was returned to the same constitution and systems that it had before, but it did have a very significant impact on the relationship between the army and the civilian government. The sour taste that this coup left in the mouths of the Chilean people contributed to the deep and mutual distrust between the military and the civilian government and to the growing chasm between the Chilean military and the wider society. Those forces will echo around in Chilean society for decades before erupting in the coup of 1973. One effect of this was that openly discussing political involvement in the military became taboo. There were a handful of small-scale coup movements, but none ever received particularly widespread military support. Soldiers were told not to discuss politics outside of the barracks, and the military was banned from even voting in Chilean elections. Now on the plus side, Chile went for more than 40 years without military intervention in the civilian government, which was a remarkable achievement. The downside was that the army began to see itself as not having an ownership stake in that civilian government. At the same time, the government began taking a much firmer hand with the military. Civilian officials had a huge say in how life was lived inside of the barracks. Generalships were few, and any officer who didn't receive one was required to retire after 30 years of service. Even more importantly, promotions to general required Senate and presidential confirmation, so beloved officers were routinely snubbed by the civilian government and their careers ended in ways that seemed arbitrary to those within the military. As conflicts arose, especially after first Alessandri and later Eduardo Fremontalva made significant cuts to the military budget, anger and dissatisfaction grew within the ranks of the army before the civilian government had any idea just how visceral their hatred of the government had become. Indeed, after the coup of 1973, most of Chilean society would be caught off guard by the violence that had simmered below the surface of the military for so long. Another important thing to note about the military after 1931 was that it became much more insular. Life within the barracks was very different from life on the streets. The military was largely excluded from the upper ranks of Chilean society, and military families were reportedly looked down on by everyone else. Soldiers lived within an incredibly strict hierarchy. Soldiers needed permission from their superiors to get married, and that permission was usually given on the basis of rank. It was fairly rare for a military man to marry a woman who didn't come from a military family. Once married, their families lived in segregated housing, moved from base to base, and rarely interacted socially with people who weren't associated with the military. Officers were expected to be as sycophantic to their superiors as they were harsh with their subordinates. 
They modeled their structure and discipline explicitly after the Prussian example. This strict authoritarian life also carried a stark, black-and-white variety of moral absolutism. Now, into this already isolated and embittered military society came another key element, anti-communism. From the 50s onward, more than 7,000 officers from Chile were trained at the U.S.-run School of the Americas. There, officers learned techniques focused not on fighting battles with other armed forces, but counterinsurgency tactics, along with a potent ideology that reframed Chilean Marxists not as a part of the valid political spectrum, but as an internal military threat. This cocktail of isolation, distrust, and a Manichaean anti-communist worldview would help explain both the violence of the military coup and junta government, and why it was such a shock to the Chilean people. So, this is a really broad, very simplified view of the Chilean military, and as I mentioned at the top, keep in mind that none of this was universal or absolute. I want to draw the focus now to Pinochet himself, and from this point forward, he's going to be woven throughout the narrative. I'm going to gloss over most of his origin story pretty quickly. He entered the military academy at 16, having been turned away twice for being too small. While there, he was an average student, but he took exceptionally well to the discipline and structure of military life. And, if I can digress for a moment, this is one of the things that's particularly interesting to me about the early life of Pinochet. Unlike most other dictators I can think of, Pinochet seems, through his early life, to be remarkably ordinary. He's not considered an intellectual heavyweight. He doesn't seem to have been particularly vehement in his beliefs, and while he wrote later about what his politics were at different times in his life, his contemporaries really didn't seem to know where he stood. He was ambitious on his rise through the military, but never struck anyone as more ambitious than any other officer. Anyway, he graduated from the military academy, attended infantry school, and went on a mission to Concepcion, and then returned to the military academy as an officer. There, Pinochet had much more contact with the civilian world in Santiago than most other officers did. He married a young woman named Lucia Girard, who was the daughter of a senator. By all accounts, Lucia was a very ambitious woman, and some texts have painted her as a kind of Lady Macbeth figure in a way that I don't find particularly convincing. It does seem that she encouraged his ambitions, and while she came from a political family, Pinochet seems to have felt condescended to by his in-laws, and this intensified his dislike for civilian politics and for politicians generally. In 1945, two respected academy officials were transferred to other posts for political reasons, and Pinochet wrote afterwards that this incident showed him that military men were sometimes defenseless against the actions of certain politicians. He was so upset about this that he requested to be transferred as well as an act of protest, and his enmity toward the civilian politicians increased. I'm going to skip ahead a bit to when he was working at a facility that has been described both as a prison camp and as a concentration camp in Pisagua in 1948. The Communist Party had been banned, and a number of party activists had been banished there. Pinochet had talked with some of them about Marxism, but had a bad reaction when he learned about a local woman smuggling communist literature into the camp in baskets of bread. Salvador Allende and a group of other leftist congressmen came to visit the camp, planning to inspect it, and Pinochet denied them entrance, calling them agitators. Pinochet seems both to have been interested in communism and repulsed by it. He writes that 
The Communist Party was no longer a party. The difference was big and profound. The way they analyzed different subjects revealed a system that shook everything without leaving any faith or credence in anything. I confess that from that moment I felt a deep desire to go forth and study those concepts and their ends, but I was very disquieted that these ideas, so pernicious and contaminating, would continue to spread themselves in Chile. Now from this point forward, Pinochet believes in anti-communism with the zeal of a convert, but first and foremost a military man, he'll keep his passionate hatred to himself. Throughout the 50s, Pinochet continued to refine and refocus this worldview, and he continued to be a scrupulous and disciplined soldier. He studied and taught geopolitics, and in 1968, he wrote a book about geopolitics, after which he was accused of plagiarizing several paragraphs. By the eve of the 1970 election, Pinochet was a brigadier general and commander-in-chief of the 6th Division of the Army, a high-ranking officer with a reputation for conformity and an absolute devotion to the Army chain of command. So, now we're in 1970, and Allende has just been confirmed as the president of Chile. His party lacks a resounding mandate, but Allende is the head of a tenuous coalition of leftists and Christian Democrats. He's a world first, the first democratically elected Marxist president. Not everyone was happy with this, and the army was privately fuming. But at least for the first year, Allende's reforms were proceeding well. As you may recall from last week's episode, Allende had been elected by a coalition called the Unidad Popular, or Popular Unity. And while this was a political coalition, it was also a movement. And hundreds of young leftist idealists had joined in the hope of making Chile a better place. One activist, interviewed in A Nation of Enemies, said, We gave our all to the UP. We lived each moment intensely and worked terribly hard. We felt an immense responsibility. We were the generation that thought we had the world in our hands. We were building a new country. Allende's reforms, beginning in that first year, included many of the same kinds of changes that had been made by Frey. Land reform was accelerated, as was the expropriation of copper mines. Allende also began expropriating other kinds of companies, including textile plants and banks. He pursued enormous employment programs for the Chilean poor. He created the nation's first truly universal minimum wage. Bread prices were fixed, and free lunch programs were created for school children. Milk was distributed to the nursing and expectant mothers, and to young children under the age of 14. There were huge government-sponsored housing developments in Santiago. There were efforts to provide education to the Mapuche peoples, who had been largely excluded by previous governments. The Allende government also made several advances for the middle class. The minimum taxable income was raised significantly, meaning that many lower middle class families suddenly paid no taxes, or paid dramatically reduced taxes. Capital taxes on small proprietors were lifted, and at least for a while this worked well. Despite what was a significant increase in deficit spending in Chile, the rate of inflation actually fell in 1971, and real wages reportedly rose by as much as 23%. Until the end of 1971, it seemed like Allende's Chilean way to socialism, not through violence and revolution, but through peaceful democratic processes, would be a success. But Allende's changes were radical, and as intensely as the young idealists of the UP were willing to fight to bring them about, other elements, both within Chile and abroad, were willing to fight to bring them to an end. 
By the end of 1971, the cracks were beginning to show in the Allende regime. One of the problems was economic. The intense growth of real wages in 1971 had been slow to transition into inflation, in part because of price controls on commodities throughout the economy. But, as is always the case, prices found ways to adjust. In 1972, inflation became a serious problem. Likewise, the price controls on Chilean goods led to endemic shortages, as producers could no longer afford to produce food for sale at official prices. Food was diverted from the official markets into black markets, further exacerbating both the shortages and the inflation. One of Allende's central economic claims was that by ending inefficiencies in the old models of production in Chile, workers could be more productive. And there were indeed many inefficiencies that were eliminated by the Allende regime, but in their place, new kinds of inefficiencies began to form. Factories and mines had difficulty replacing broken parts and machinery. Party loyalists were given decision-making powers over people with more experience and expertise. Short-term productivity boosts were prioritized over more sustainable practices. Number fudging became endemic. Workers in some state-owned enterprises reportedly worked fewer hours, and the government was never able to convince them that when the factory wasn't working, it was now their problem to solve. These economic problems were exacerbated by foreign intervention. Nixon was already committed to having the Allende regime overthrown in a coup. Part of that effort was to destabilize Chile economically. As early as 1970, they had given the CIA orders to take covert measures designed to, as he put it, make the Chilean economy scream. Now, I should mention here that this is all somewhat disputed. There is clear proof that these orders were given, and we have very solid documentation on some aspects of what Allende would later dub the invisible blockade, but it's difficult to establish exactly how important these policies were to destabilizing the Chilean economy, and the historiography here is deeply colored by political alignment of the authors. Still, the goal of the U.S. government intervention was clear. In a letter to Eduardo Frey Montalva, Ambassador Edward Corey wrote, not a nut or a bolt will be allowed to reach Chile under Allende. We shall do all within our power to condemn Chile and Chileans to utmost deprivation and poverty. And they did pursue measures to isolate Chile economically. They also distributed propaganda, pressured multinational firms not to do business with Chile, encouraged U.S. companies and investors to rapidly withdraw investments from Chile, and, probably most effectively, they spent enormous amounts to finance strikes, most notably a trucker's strike. With U.S. backing, these strikes were easier to organize and could last much longer and be far more damaging. In addition to the covert destabilization efforts, Allende's mine nationalization program would give Nixon cover to exert overt public sanctions against Chile. Now, bear with me for a moment as we get a bit into the weeds in talking about copper mine nationalization. You may recall from last week that Frey, Allende's predecessor, had pursued a gradual, compensated program of nationalizing copper mines. Under Allende, though he maintained a nominal commitment to compensate owners for expropriated property, the government began a move to essentially levy back taxes for excessive profits against the owners of copper mines. The argument essentially came down to this. The owners of mines had unfairly exploited Chilean workers and damaged the Chilean economy in an effort to extract profit from the mines. 
the government looked at copper mines elsewhere in the world and made the somewhat arbitrary decision that 12% was the rate of profit for normal business practices in operating mines, and that the owners of Chilean mines had reaped excessive profits of $774 million since 1950. The logic went that this $774 million was essentially money that was stolen from Chile. Mine owners took away money that, in other countries, would have been invested locally or paid to workers. Before mine owners could be compensated for their losses, the government would first deduct its own compensation for this theft. And, on the one hand, that's not a crazy claim. Chilean workers were often extravagantly abused in the mines, and certainly the Chilean economy suffered from having nearly all of the proceeds from the commodity that represented 80% of its exports immediately expatriated to the United States. Now, on the other hand, it's not quite fair to compare the Chilean copper mines with copper mines around the world. Chile has, by far, the largest copper deposits in the world. It's not even close. And the three big mines were on some of the richest seams in the world. It's also, let's say, slightly suspicious that when you subtract that $774 million from the book value due to the owners upon nationalization, you end up with, hey, would you look at that, zero dollars. Well, not quite zero. The total for the big three mines came in at a nice round zero dollars, but some very small amounts were given for a handful of smaller mines. A suspicious mind might look at this and say that compensation minus excessive profit looked an awful lot like uncompensated nationalization. One such suspicious mind belonged to the United States President Richard Nixon. And thanks to the Watergate tapes, we actually have a recording of exactly how it was discussed. Now, I've put a link in the show notes to the actual clips and transcripts of everything in the Nixon tapes about Chile, and I would love to use the real audio here, but it just isn't good enough quality. But I really want to encourage you all to check it out. It's just one of the most fascinating historical records I've come across. And a huge shout-out to the folks who have transcribed and collected it all over at nixontapes.org. Anyway, this is from a conversation between Nixon, Bob Haldeman, and John Connolly in the Oval Office. Connolly. He's, he's gone back and said that the copper companies owe $700 million. It's obviously a farce, and obviously he doesn't intend to compensate for the expropriated properties. He's thrown the gauntlet to us. Now it's our move. Nixon. Listen, I've decided. You give us a plan, we'll carry it out. Don't worry. This is one where I knew he would do it, and we're going to play it very tough with him. Connolly. Well, we've got Peru going now. We've got Peru. Nixon. On our side. Connolly. On our side. Nixon. That's right. Connolly. We've got Bolivia going on our side, and this guy Allende gets away with it. But it's a matter that Henry will have to get into. Nixon. Now, well, that's right, but I've decided we're going to give Allende the hook. Connolly. I just think it's awfully important to drive your point home, because he's an enemy. Nixon. Oh, of course he's an enemy. Connolly. The only thing you can ever hope is to have him overthrown, and in the meantime, you will make your point to prove, by your actions against him, what you want, that you are looking after American interests, that this is a, this is, Nixon. Well, John, it may find the guy we can kick. You know, you always said, let's find somebody in this world we can kick. Connolly. That's right. Nixon. And I think we should make a hell of a case out of him. Like I just said, we're not going to take this. The U.S. slashed aid to Chile, demanded loan repayments, 
and pressured the UN, WTO, and IMF, with varying degrees of success, to penalize Chile for the confiscations. Now, as I said, the degree to which problems with the Chilean economy were internal or due to U.S. destabilization efforts is murky, but the two factors together were toxic. The value of the Chilean currency cratered. Imported goods became unaffordable. Across Chile, the breadlines got longer. Poverty and hunger became widespread. And after the high watermark of wages in 1971, real wages began to decline fast, to far below their levels under Eduardo Frey. By and large, the people of Chile were hungry and angry. And in the final two years of Allende's regime, we enter into the period of escalating tension and violence that will culminate in the coup on September 11th, 1973. And I think the best summary of this period comes from Christian Democrat Radomir Tomic in a letter to General Prats, who took over from Schneider after he was murdered by the coup plotters in 1970. Tomic wrote prophetically, The murky wave of exaggerated passions and violence, of moral blindness and irrationality, of weakness and enfeeblement that shook all sectors of the nation, and which is, to a greater or lesser extent, everybody's doing, threatens to submerge the country, perhaps for many years. It would be unfair to deny that the responsibility of some is greater than that of others, but, some more and others less, we are all pushing the Chilean democracy toward the slaughter. As in the tragedies of the classical Greek theater, everyone knows what is going to happen. Everyone says they do not want it to happen, but each one does precisely what is necessary to bring about the misfortune they're all trying to avoid. Scarcity and rationing led to widespread corruption within the UP, as loyalists were given more rations of basic staples than everyone else. As the economy deteriorated, the Christian Democrats stopped supporting the Allende government, and along with conservatives, obstructed congressional efforts toward reforms promised by the Allende regime. Allende's ministers responded by pursuing their aims through ever greater decree powers with varying degrees of constitutionality. Right-wing militia groups, including one called Patria y Libertad, or Fatherland and Liberty, began a terrorist campaign, blowing up electric lines and factories. The Allende regime reacted to the increased violence and terror by making more authoritarian decrees. Leftist militants, seeing in the acts of conservatives the hand of foreign anti-communists, formed their own violent campaigns, formed training camps, and tried to infiltrate the military. These actions fueled the fires stoked by U.S. propaganda that the Allende regime was headed towards Stalinist-style authoritarianism and repression. The Chilean people became deeply divided between those who supported the UP and saw the violence as illegal attempts to destroy a democratic government, and those who saw in Allende's growing authoritarianism an affirmation of all the fears they had about communism. Conservatives openly began plotting the overthrow of the government and started to garner widespread support. Leftists became more convinced than ever that the conservatives were conspiring to overthrow them and urged the government to proceed with reforms in spite of opposition and to arm peasants to defend the revolution. Like a microphone placed too close to a speaker, the feedback mounted. Each side saw the, in the other's extremism a confirmation of their worst fears and amped up their own violence and authoritarianism to match. Allende himself still tried to find a middle ground. He tried to find compromises and to speak with members on both the right and the left to find a peaceful way forward, but the middle was gone. 
Compromise had to be built on trust, and there was no longer any trust between the extremes of Chilean politics. At the end of June 1973, a regiment of tanks attacked the seat of government, a building called La Moneda, firing wildly in an attempted coup that was eventually put down by General Prats. This event came to be known as the Tanquetazo. A few days later, in early July, a group of military officers formed the Committee of Fifteen, and sent a list of demands to Allende, backed by the implicit threat of a coup. Allende invited the heads of the four branches of the military into his cabinet as a way to appease them, but this did little to cement support, and only seemed to intensify calls for a coup. As tensions mounted and violence escalated, Pinochet became more important, ironically because he was seen as so loyal to the military chain of command that he would never be convinced to join in a coup attempt. Prats, in fact, asked Pinochet to draw up plans for how to deal with a counter-government uprising. By August, a coup was inevitable. On August 21st, a group of military wives staged a protest outside of General Pratt's house, calling him a coward. The next day, convinced that he had now lost the support of his officers, he resigned, saying that he would not serve as a pretext for the overthrow of the government. That same day, a majority in the lower house of Congress passed a resolution stating that the government had engaged in unconstitutional behavior and urging the military to put an end to the government. On the 23rd, Allende appointed Pinochet, who had been throughout reassuring Allende and Prats of his loyalty as the commander of the army, replacing Prats. At first, it seems that Pinochet did indeed try to restore discipline and order within the army. He demanded the resignations of several officers that supported a coup, but when they didn't resign, he realized that the chain of command would not be sufficient to prevent intervention. He rescinded the order and called a meeting of his top officers where he asked them to swear an oath to remain loyal to the army, hinting that this loyalty might be required in the event of a coup. Still, the main plotters didn't yet trust Pinochet, whose reputation had always been one of scrupulous obedience. On September 9th, General Lee interrupted Pinochet's daughter's birthday party to talk to him about the need for military overthrow of the government. At that moment, two Navy officers arrived with a note asking both Lee and Pinochet to sign a pact to support a coup that was planned to begin in two days, on September 11th. In the end, it seems that the main orchestrator of the coup was General Arellano, who was known as the Man of the Coup. And though Pinochet would claim in El Día Decisivo that he had been convinced long before of the need for a military overthrow of the government and had begun his own preparations, the historical consensus seems to be that it was presented to Pinochet as a fait accompli, that he needed to either sign or face reprisal after the military government was in place. On the morning of September 11, 1973, the Navy captured the port city of Valparaíso, and Arellano's forces shut down most communications in Santiago. The Air Force began bombing the remaining broadcasters. Allende and his bodyguards took refuge inside La Moneda, the presidential palace in Santiago. By nine o'clock, the military controlled all of Chile, except for the very center of Santiago. Allende refused to surrender, and refused offers of safe passage out of the country, though Pinochet at the time joked grimly that his plane might fall out of the sky. Pinochet ordered an airstrike on La Moneda, and while waiting for the planes to arrive, he ordered an infantry assault but they suffered heavy fire by snipers in Allende's personal bodyguard. 
Finally, the aircraft arrived and began bombing the building. Allende sent out a final message to the Chilean people over the radio before committing suicide, and I want to end with an excerpt of that final address to the nation, but I will include a link to the full audio in the show notes. The people must defend themselves, but they must not sacrifice themselves. The people must not let themselves be destroyed or riddled with bullets, but they cannot be humiliated either. Workers of my country, I have faith in Chile and its destiny. Other men will overcome this dark and bitter moment when treason seeks to prevail. Go forward knowing that, sooner or later, the great avenues will open again where free men will walk to build a better society. These are my last words, and I am certain that my sacrifice will not be in vain. I am certain that, at the very least, it will be a moral lesson that will punish felony, cowardice, and treason. And on that note, that's it for this week. Thanks again for listening to the Dictator's Podcast. If you want to support the show, please spread the word, and be sure to join me next week as I cover the Civil War, the Repression, and Pinochet's Consolidation of Power.